This week we discuss first lines of treatment, opioid addiction, and why interstate cannabis commerce might not necessarily be a good thing. All that and more coming up right now on Critical Grass. Forget it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. My name is Richard Park. I'm from uh, Chicago, Illinois, originally uh, born and raised. I'm a cannabis consultant and operator who has worked in uh, multiple states from California to uh, Pennsylvania uh, since the 90s. You just heard Milted with a track called Chicago, a city known for its house music. Yes, indeed. Still in the USA, still in Illinois for this episode. However, this time we focus exclusively on the wonderful city of Chicago, where we meet with another local ganjapreneur, Richard Park of Dispensary 33 fame. Richard established Dispensary 33 in 2015 and was Chicago's very first medical cannabis dispensary, serving patients on the north side in the Winnemac neighborhood in Uptown. It has been featured on Leafly's list of most beautiful dispensaries in the USA, High Times Best Cannabis Dispensaries in America, and Cannabis Now's 100 Best Dispensaries, only one of three dispensaries to make all three of those lists. Richard himself is quite the entrepreneur, having lived and worked in several states and operated various businesses throughout the country. But Chicago is where home is, as you will soon hear more about. I asked Richard about his background and how he got started in the cannabis industry. In the late 90s, I went to California to help take over a second-generation farm in, in Northern California um, with, with one of my best friends. Um, and that was kind of my introduction, introduction into what I would call hippie pop, right? Like, and, and, and the kind of the, the way that culture looks at it, um, more holistic and, and, and things like that. Uh, but in the mid-2000s, I moved to Colorado, and a good friend of ours, um, parents' mom had, had cancer. Um, and because I knew how, where to get pot and, and, and things like that, they asked me to hunt down, you know, quote unquote, like Rick, Rick Simpson oils. Um, yeah, RSO, maybe the first time I heard about it was 2002, 2003, somewhere, somewhere in that time. Um, and we didn't really know much about it. I contacted kind of a few people, a few hippie types that I knew in, uh, the Colorado area. Um, and I was able to acquire that. And I met a couple of, um, physicians who were very early on advocating for the use of cannabis oils to supplement chemotherapy and, and, and things like that. Um, that's when it kind of went from like, you know, oh, it's good for glaucoma, you know, this is what we had always heard. And, and we had never really considered it. I had never really considered it physical medicine, right? We considered it almost spiritual medicine or, or something like that, you know. Um, 
mental medicine. Um, and it was then when there was an actual, you know, MD doctor trying to explain to me the way that it works uh, with the apoptosis of cells and, you know, and, and that's, that's a whole wormhole of, of its own. Um, um, but it really improved my friend's mother. Um, and we didn't know what we were doing at the time. We were doing the kind of Rick Simpson protocol, the start with a grain of rice size drop, which, you know, I, I believe is a completely asinine way to look at it now. Um, but at the time I had no frame of, of reference. We just didn't, we just didn't know. Um, so that was kind of the moment where we were like, this is like medicine, like medicine, medicine. And that, that's when our, our perspective on it started to change. Prop 215 passes in like 1995, which allows for the cultivation of cannabis. Um, so, you know, the people who kind of introduced me to the game out there were obviously growing in California way before Prop 215. Um, the late 90s in NorCal was a little bit like the old school hippies were like even moving to Southern Oregon at this time. They had already felt like uh, cannabis in, 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 Cal in NorCal had become too commercialized. And so, um, uh, yeah, I went there to go help take over a large scale grow. My friend's dad wanted to retire. Um, and so... You know, it's one of the few or handful of second generation grows out there, which was which was not terribly uncommon. But one of the issues is that it gave us a way to cultivate and manufacture cannabis, um, but it didn't really give anybody a way to retail cannabis, right? So, like, people are like, oh, I've been going to dispensaries for years. They're like pre-ICO, like legal. They're not really legal, right? There's no, there was no license that allowed for them to operate. It was basically just the government deciding they were not going to prosecute these people. And I think Berkeley Patients Group like totally pioneered that and, and the model that they kind of used. Um, the patient model that we know of, that's really Berkeley Patients Group's model, right? To like keep records and transactional records because they were, as I understand it, they were preemptively preparing a legal defense for when they did get raided because they were assuming that they were going to get raided. And so they wanted to prove that these are all patients that they're helping. Um, turns out they never got raided. And so everybody just copied um, Berkeley Patients Group's model for, for how to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how we existed in California for a while. You know, for like anybody who's been in this game for a long time, maybe not anybody. I mean, I know some people who have gone since the 80s with no break. But like occasionally you decide you want to make a paycheck somewhere like at a normal job and, and you try to go, you know, work somewhere else. So for whatever reason, I was in, I was, I happened to be in Colorado. Um, at that time, I was a consulting for, you know, high risk nightclubs or, or and stuff like that. Um, and my cousin is out there who is uh, a very well-known grower in Colorado now and, and, and this sort of stuff. And we kind of stumbled upon the, the, the medical aspects, right? Like, I, I'd be lying if I said, like, that's where our passion started and came from. Like, that's just, that's just not how it was. Um, I think there are kids now that I see in a, different, in a different age group who kind of came up in the cannabis game during the, the kind of medical period who look at it definitely differently than we do. Um, but yeah, at that at the time, that's that that's not what it was. We knew it was not harmful, right? Which mm -hmm. I think is the basis for all dispensaries. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do what we do um, at Dispensary Thirty Three or or anywhere if we thought it could harm people. So what started as an ambitious business venture quickly turned out to be a journey into natural medicine. While Richard admits medicine wasn't what originally motivated him to get into the industry, it did turn out to be the focus the model for his operations coming from Berkeley Patients Group, which is America's longest-running dispensary since its establishment in 1999. California is definitely not a bad place to cut your teeth, and it's no surprise Richard then went on to Colorado, which was one of the first states to fully legalize recreational cannabis back in 2012. 
with Colorado and other places on the West Coast quickly becoming the cannabis El Dorados, I wondered what brought Richard back to Chicago. Honestly, I came back to open restaurants. You know, um, I had done a stint in Colorado. Had a, me and my cousin had opened a dispensary out there, and um, um, he was running it. Uh, I came back, tried to open restaurants and stuff like that, which I discovered um, was a terrible way to try to make money. The cannabis business is way, way better. And um, I heard that the medical law was coming to Illinois, and I couldn't believe it. I, I had always grown up thinking, I mean, Illinois is a very blue state, um, but it is the most conservative of all the blue kind of states, you know. Um, uh, I looked into it, um, found a couple of partners that I knew very well, and we decided that if we applied for this, we would be in a pretty good position. Um, and, and it turned out to be like, you know, we were the only kind of applicant, you know, top score in our district and all this kind of stuff who who had any experience in cannabis. That's the thing that blew my mind in Illinois. Nobody here has ever done this before, right? Like, none of the owners, none of these groups, they all, they don't know anything about pot, and we thought it was a competitive advantage for us. Given the cannabis landscape in Illinois at the time, it's safe to say Richard had a pretty major advantage over most other local dispensary license applicants in the state. Getting in on the action early on also worked in his favor. However, Illinois was still miles away from where Colorado and other legal states were, and not just from a recreational point of view. Obtaining a medical card or recommendation in a state like California, for example, usually consists of a 15-minute online application, followed by a phone call with a certified physician, and presto, you get a PDF file that you can then take to your favorite dispensary and buy all the cannabis you need. However, Illinois is a little different, to put it mildly. To become a patient, you must have one of 40 qualifying conditions, find a physician who will recommend cannabis as treatment, fill out several forms, and wait approximately 60 to 90 days. You'll get your card in the mail. However, recently the state passed a law expanding the conditions to include patients qualifying for opioid prescriptions in order to deal with the rampant opioid crisis, and in August, still governor and cannabis skeptic Bruce Rauner signed a new law doing away with the requirements for fingerprinting and background checks which helps to do away with the stigma that cannabis is some incredibly dangerous, poorly studied substance that needs constant control and that users are on the verge of becoming hopeless junkies if not for the tender surveillance of the state. The law still somewhat reinforces the notion that cannabis should only be reserved for extreme medical cases and life-or-death situations. However, that is something Richard would like to change. That's why, you know, our argument is always that it shouldn't be last-line treatment, it should be first-line treatment. You know, before you get to Norco, before you get to Oxy, before you get to even more powerful drugs and fentanyls and and all this kind of stuff, um, it just doesn't make sense to us why you would try cannabis last, Mm -hmm. right? You should try it first. And if it doesn't work, then we can always move on to, like, super hardcore drugs, right? And the analogy that we always give is, you know, is the therapeutic index, right? Like... 40,000 to 1, you know, and for people who don't know, the therapeutic index is a ratio between a lethal dose and an effective dose of any drug, right? Um, And in cannabis, it's 40,000 to 1. If one unit uh, brings you relief, it'll take 40,000 of those units to kill you, Um, kill you way faster. Um, The the opioid narcotics are are way higher, you know. If you wanted to equate that into practical terms, 40,000 to 1 means you'd have to smoke something like, you know, 1,500 pounds in 15 or 20 minutes to die from cannabis. And we don't even know that, right? That's a 
usually when we create a therapeutic index, we actually kill an animal, right? We say, okay, let's, let's overdose this animal and kill it, and then we know. In cannabis, we've not successfully been able to kill any freaking animals, so that's an estimate. We have to guess, right? Um, but that's how safe cannabis is, and I think that's the, that's the basis of our entire industry. It's like, um, yo, we're not going to hurt anybody. Like, we're not going to hurt anybody. And there are these potential benefits. So um, I think everyone, especially if you're in a chronic pain situation, right? I've never met a pain management doctor. And we do, I do clinical presentations for doctors all the time um, and, and medical groups all over Illinois, Chicago, and other states. Um, I've never met a pain management doctor who says, yes, for chronic pain, for long-term pain that's never going away, opioids are the best solution. They all know opioids were not created for long-term pain that's never going to go away, right? Opioids are created for short-term pain relief. And for anyone who doesn't believe that, I mean, you just don't believe in the theory of addiction, right? Like, we, we know for a fact if you continue to use opioids over a long period of time, like, you will get addicted. They're not designed for that. And and, and so for us, it's like, you know, when, when it comes to pain and cannabis, it's just, it makes a whole lot of sense to start with cannabis before you move on to something more hardcore. Given the nature of cannabis and the fact that human beings come equipped with a natural system to receive chemical compounds found in the plant, also known as the endocannabinoid system, it begs the question as to why cannabis is not a first-line treatment in fighting things like chronic pain in the first place. However, if you take into account the financial losses pharmaceutical companies producing things like opioids stand to take, then their reasons for discouraging cannabis use become clear. They don't like other people cutting into their profits. Now their model of exclusivity and scarcity is beginning to crumble as sufferers of chronic pain and opioid addicts are switching to something that is much more effective and safe. Let's just take a quick look at our cannabis overdose death counter here and... Still at zero, a few thousand years in. But isn't cannabis an addictive drug as well? Won't we see millions of users suddenly being rushed to rehab and an explosion in addiction treatment centers? I know a lot of people who have been in drug rehab, right? Um, a lot of people know a lot of people who have been in drug rehab. Imagine you walk into drug rehab. If you've ever been to drug rehab, you know this story. You cannot walk in there and say you're addicted to cannabis. Like, you just can't. Because everybody in that room inherently knows how ridiculous that sounds. Right. Even if there is some kind of psychological dependence that happens with cannabis. Right. We've all if you've been smoking for 30 years or something like that, like you've been there where like you're about to run out of like your bag of weed or whatever. And you have this little panic attack or something like that. Um, dude, you cannot equate that to like what heroin addiction is like or what alcoholism is like. Like they're 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 not the same. There is a different severity of withdrawal. There is a different impact on your life. Um I think to compare those two is to really minimize people who are going through really severe addiction. So not to downplay any issues from using too much cannabis, as there certainly can be issues, especially if cannabis is not the solution to your problems. It's not a panacea, and if you're doing it just out of boredom, you might be doing it wrong. It can be a distraction depending on the circumstances, and there are people who use it to escape from certain issues or to at least forget about them. While such an approach might not be the best way to tackle the daily problems of life, and this can be said for any substance, with cannabis at least you know you will not end up lethally overdosing and you might actually experience some medical benefits as a result. But for opponents and prohibitionists, that argument is not enough, as some claim cannabis is just a ruse for getting high legally. I asked Richard whether he thinks it's a bit of a Trojan horse. 
maybe in practice, but not in intent. You know, um, look, there are always going to be people who game any system that you make, right? Um, I don't think we're we should stop providing access to people who really benefit because a few people game the system, um, and and you know we're maybe this is a little bit old school of me, but I think all cannabis use is medicinal use, right? I think I think there is a reason in society you go home and you have a beer when you're done with work. Uh, I think there's a reason in society where we go out on the weekends and 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 get hammered. Um, I think there is a psychological pressure just to being alive that forces people to find forms of escape, whether it's video games, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever the fucking case is. And I think of all those things that I just said, cannabis is the least harmful to you. Even people who are using it recreationally, right? Even people who say they're using it recreationally, I'm, I'm just using it to get high. You know, there's a reason that we seek that as human beings. And, and, and I think it's totally beneficial. And I think you can't argue that it's more harmful than alcohol or tobacco or any of any of these things. Um, and, and I know that's not what these politicians are talking about when they say people are just trying to get high. And so maybe that was a little bit, you know, a little bit esoteric or whatever, but that's fine. Chronic pain, right? Long-term pain that does not go away is a real problem. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we can debate forever why it has become a problem over the, in, in, in you know, at least in, in the 20th century in, in modern times. I would argue that it's probably been a problem since people have existed. And so you can't deny that access. It is better to let a thousand guilty men go free than to convict one innocent person, right? And I, and I think the way that's, that's the way compassionate kind of medicine works, especially given the, given the severity of the, of, of the crime. To touch on Richard's point about gaming the system, yes, people will always try to do exactly that, and you will always have people who get away with it. However, you can also argue that the system has been gaming cannabis users for decades. Millions of people have been wrongly or unjustly punished because they like using a plant. Making nature illegal is a way of rigging the system. So if a few people beat the system, its proponents claim cheating. But what does it say about the system if it imprisons millions of users around the world for decades, only to become ineffective and untenable? On the plus side, we see prohibition fading away at last. However, that doesn't mean it's all smooth sailing for people like Richard. I want us to know what were some of the biggest obstacles and challenges he faced in Chicago. Um, regulatory burden in Illinois. So in Illinois, and I tell this to my California friends all the time, the level of business sophistication that happens here is, is really advanced. Um, the people who own these companies here have owned multi-million dollar companies before, right? They have dealt with supply chain management before. They have dealt with very strict federal regulation or state level regulation before. That was the biggest hurdle. The amount of money that is spent here on security and cameras and cloud storage of, of video and, and um, vaults and money delivery and things like that. Like it's another level, man. It's stuff that we never saw in Colorado. It's stuff that we never saw in California. But the goal in Illinois was to prove to the government, right? Cause this is what you have to do in more conservative States is to prove to the government that we are so good at following the rules, right? That we are so good at following the rules and to be very diligent, you know, um, um, be very compliant and, and understand how to work with our regulators. And the thing in Illinois is like, you know, something that people don't know about here. Like, so everyone's like, oh, well, how come, you know, 
the laws are like this and the laws are like that. And, and, and that's just a complaint that consumers are always going to have um, because they don't understand. But in Illinois, they didn't tell you, hey, your security had to be like this. These are the requirements for your vault. These are the requirements for cash handling. They said, look, there's this many points awarded on the application. Best version wins, right? So you had to come up with a security plan that was going to be better than what you presumed your, your, your competitor security plans were going to be. So what did you do? You did all your, you did, you made everything state of the freaking art. You know what I mean? You did everything. We, we hired consultants from the FBI and, and all these people to try to tell us, you know, how to best handle security. Um, we had a consultant who was, um, the sergeant in arms of the Congress of the United States Congress for, for a time being, and he was retired and, you know, we had him consult on our, on our application. Um, and the way Illinois did it was whatever you said in your application, that's what we're holding you to. So everyone's held to like a slightly different law or a slightly different, you know, regulatory burden. Um, but what that did was that made security out of control, right? Like it's like, you couldn't rob a dispensary here. Like you just can't, even if you're like one of these, movie jewel thieves it's just it's too hard it's not worth it you know um and so i, I think it was a very good model that, that that ended up being adopted and incidentally this is the way it works east of us right so like ohio pennsylvania new york all these other states that are east of illinois kind of based the way their program's going to work on the way illinois did it um i don't know that chicago gets enough credit for being the first kind of midwest state you know or illinois gets the gets credit for that because it, you know all the east coast stuff happens after illinois they all waited to see how illinois went down and they were like okay you know they were able to turn it into a legitimate business in illinois um what what, what governments really didn't want was this california model of you know what we would call the gray market like legal to grow just not gonna we're just gonna look the other way when it comes to selling you know, um, and there's a lot of states who had that kind of atmosphere, right? Washington was like that. Oregon was like that. California is like that. Michigan is like that. Um, but now we're starting to starting to see that kind of kind of change. On the one hand, it's a relief that the state has finally allowed people to start setting up shop. People might complain about overregulation and going through red tape, but that is much more preferable to jail time and ostracism. On the other hand, it's still disappointing that it's the proponents of cannabis that have to be on their absolute best behavior, while people in other industries, notably alcohol, tobacco, and big pharma, who face fewer strict regulations and whose products are, shall we say, a little more on the lethal side of things. Not exactly fair, but then again, neither is life. There are plenty of people in the cannabis industry who would be happy to be absolutely 100% compliant provided they get to do what they love and will be smiling proudly when the state comes in for inspection and sees that everything is legitimate. It is understandable how the authorities didn't want a free-for-all that could potentially become a giant regulatory mess. But making patients feel like they are a burden for wanting access to a natural medicine is a little over the top. However, as mentioned in the past, now Governor-elect J.B. Pritzker has come out in favor of legalizing recreational cannabis almost immediately, which means an overall loosening of the laws, as Richard mentions. I asked him how far away he thinks we are from recreational cannabis in Illinois. I think the law will be passed by end of 2020. 
if not a little bit sooner, as, as long as Governor Rauner is not elected again. I think, um, you know, J.B. Pritzker did his press conference uh, right in front of our dispensary. He's a big supporter of medical cannabis um, um, and recreational cannabis. I, I think he understands, number one, the social injustice caused by our current system. Um, and then number two, um, the financial boom. Um, not just in tax revenue, but ancillary business. And, you know, cannabis employers are some of the best employers, right, in the country. We we, we, we pay better. We take care of our employees better. We, we, we want to be good corporate citizens, which is, you know, not the case with most companies that have th- that level of money, right? Like um, the larger you get as a company, the more it makes sense for you to create efficiencies, you know. Um, but we don't. You know, the industry as a whole, we're, we're more representative of women. Um, we're not as representative of, of minorities as we should be. Um, but I think it's a, it's a problem that we want to look at internally. Yeah, I think, I think Governor or, or candidate Pritzker understands that. And I think all the candidates endorse it, except for Rauner, you know, mm-hmm. which is he's kind of a leftover of an, of an, of an old system. Mm-hmm. The trend of civilization uh, moves left. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if I look at it, if we look at it over 2000 years, 5000 years, whatever the case may be, you know, the trend of civilization moves, moves left. You know? So Richard is quite optimistic about cannabis in Illinois, both in the short and long term. I interviewed him before the Illinois election in November. So his comments and concerns about Governor Rauner with respect to the future of the cannabis industry no longer apply, thankfully. Richard also mentions how different of an approach cannabis employers have towards their employees. We still have yet to see how they will be treated on a much greater scale once the industry has taken off, which will, of course, take some time. But the signs are rather promising. I also wanted to know whether he thinks we'll see federal legalization soon, and his answer might be surprising. I don't. Um, And I get in this debate a lot, but I think eventually federal laws will have to change. But, you know, like we were talking about before... I think it is much more difficult for the federal government to create some kind of um, federal level legislation involving cannabis, right? Um, descheduling, rescheduling, the allowing of interstate commerce. I think this is a really big lift for the governments. I don't think people have really asked the right questions. Like, how are the insurance companies going to get involved? I mean, do you really see insurance companies covering cannabis? I don't know what that would cost insurance companies, but it sounds like a lot to me. Um, um, I, I don't know how interstate commerce is going to work in that scenario. And anybody who's advocating for full federal legalization, like, I hope you want to get your pot from Budweiser from now on, right? Because that's what's going to happen if you allow interstate commerce. Um, like, right now, everyone's like, oh, Big Pharma's trying to take the game and, and all this kind of stuff. Like, yo, I've had meetings with people in Big Pharma. They're not interested yet, right? They're R&D right now. They're trying to figure out if they're going to be interested, Um but the problem is, is those companies don't move until you have a global market, you know, like everyone like Corona is in the news, like, oh, Corona made this huge investment. Man, I guarantee you that is an R&D investment. I guarantee you they're trying to figure out if it's going to be worth it for them a decade from now. Right now, the market is not global, right? Um, and there aren't these efficiencies that global multinational corporations can achieve, Um so I am of the opinion, and, and, and my point is, is that that's a big lift for the federal government to do. But allowing states to individually create rec programs, that's not a big lift for the federal government. And we've seen it done now in 30-some-odd states, you know, rec or medical, depending on the way it is. And like I said, the wind is blowing towards uh, rec. 
I think that is much easier. And I'm a big advocate within the industry that like we do not want interstate commerce, right? Like, I love the idea of Appalachians. I love the idea that California Bud is California Bud and Illinois Bud is Illinois Bud. And Oregon Bud is Oregon Bud. Because when I travel the country, you know, which I do every year, it's like I love these distinct little kind of differences. The best pot I had in all of 20,000 or 2018, as far as flower goes, was in Oregon. I think the flower is tremendous out there. You know, um, I think almost everyone is growing, you know, quote unquote organic, right? And that's a big argument. I like, what does organic even mean? That means you can't use base, like whatever. Um, but the pot in, in, in Oregon was the best I've tried in 2018. You know, with the exception of maybe the GMO from Cookie Fam, you know, out of, uh, out of, out of SF. Like that was, that was incredible too. Um, you know, and I, I, and I, I think that's the way the industry should kind of, should kind of go. We should not have interstate commerce. Because as soon as you have interstate commerce, somebody is going to go buy half of Nebraska. Um, they're going to turn it into a giant outdoor pot field controlled by pesticides and genetically modified seeds. Um, they're going to crash the fucking price. Uh, and you're going to get all these weird derivative products that are just designed to, you know, sell you something. Because this is, this is what the multinational corporations do. You know? And if we allow that to happen, we'll deserve it. That was some highly interesting insight on the industry on a national level, and as much as I'd like to see the feds reverse their policy on cannabis, there are definitely some arguments to be made against interstate commerce, and for keeping things as local as possible. Sadly, we only have a short amount of time to touch on these topics, but where can we find Richard if we're hungry for more information? www.dispensary33.com um, and you can reach out to us there. Um, we're also on Dispensary33 on social media, Facebook, Instagram. And with that, we say goodbye to this week's guest. Richard Park from Dispensary33, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Awesome, thank you, man. That is a wrap for episode nine. One more until we reach the double digits. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can share with your loved and hated ones on your nearest social media network. Tune in next week when we return to Europe, the birthplace of history. My name is Bogdan, and I'll see you next time. Ciao.